0: John chapter 4 is a very beautiful uh, portion of Scripture. It uh, contains, I think, one of the most fascinating encounters of the life of Jesus, and it points us to a task that God has given to each of us as followers of Jesus, and that is the task of communicating the good news of Christ to a world that is so desperately needy, and the. Kind of the thrust of my challenge to you this morning is going to be something like this. Let gospel sharing change every encounter that you experience in your life. The understanding for the church is this, that we have God-given purposes, and we've been working through them over the last few weeks. The last purpose that we're coming to today is the purpose of evangelism or making the good news of Jesus known in our sphere of influence. Now the truth is that when most of us think of sharing our faith in Christ, we experience some level of discomfort. Uh, This is common. Uh, Perhaps uh, we feel a little bit of guilt about our current silence, uh, fear, uh, lack of knowledge, many, many reasons why we want to but fail to. Share the good news of Christ. And my aim today is not going to be to try to make you feel bad about how little you do in hopes that you finally will step out and do it. I think that would be highly unproductive. But my desire as we look at John chapter 4 is that you would gain a better grasp of the gospel through our study today, a more comprehensive understanding of the nature of God's love expressed through Christ in His work on the cross so that you will fill with joy that is uncontainable and must be shared. You see, I don't think demand drives evangelism. I believe that joy drives evangelism. An understanding of how glorious the work of God in our lives is and how transformational it aims to be so that we are people that are fundamentally Different And filled with a joy, a deep gratitude because of the grace of God that has been expressed and experienced in our lives. So this story begins with a very simple observation that Jesus, verse 3, is leaving Judea and is going uh, back once more to Galilee. That is to say that he's been in the southern portion of the land of Israel and now he's moving to the northern portion. So from the capital city of Jerusalem up to the area that we know as the Sea of Galilee. Verse 4 gives us some insight into the journey as in terms of the way the map is going to be traveled. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. And you can get into a lot of discussions about this as to whether there was geographic reason that Jesus goes that way because it's a shortcut, or, and I think a better explanation is that there is a divine necessity that is driving this journey. Uh, there is a divine call that is affecting the decision-making of Jesus. The average Jew very simply would not travel through Samaria. They would go down the Jericho Road and walk up by the Jordan River and arrive at the Sea of Galilee to the north. Passing through the land of Samaria would be considered passing through contaminated territory that you you might get negatively influenced or affected by that journey. And so we find Jesus is moving through there, I believe, of divine necessity. He had to go through Samaria. When he gets into Samaria, into a town called Sychar, he comes near the plot of the ground of Jacob, where Jacob had built a well (laughs) centuries before. And as he arrives there, the text makes a a pointed observation. It says, he came to this place, at the end of verse 6, it says, it was about noon. So it, says, it acknowledges that Jesus, in his human form, is experiencing tiredness. There is a physical thirst that has overcome him. He sits at the well, and the disciples go into town to McDonald's to take care of what they're passionate about, okay? And that's food, all right? So they've got their priorities straight. Jesus sits at the well, and there's a purpose in the sovereign plan of God for this separation of the disciples and the entry of the primary character of this story, who most of us know as the woman woman at the well. It's a powerful and instructive encounter. It's at noon. And the if, I, if you said to me, Tim, what's central to the story of the woman at the well? What is central in this story is the topic of water. Okay, water is the central theme of, of the next uh, 20 to 30 verses. It, it, it saturates this text like water saturates a sponge. So, I just want you to just grasp that it's a central factor. And the the thing that we would say about water is this. Uh, Thirst, human thirst, can only be satisfied by water. Okay, and that's an underlying, very important theme that this text is going to drive. So enter the woman. Verse 7. It says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Parenthetically, the writer says this, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the idea of associating is there is no contact. That is contact with them is prohibited it would negatively stigmatize the individual so here's the first kind of understanding of the gospel that emerges from the text and you see it in the way that jesus approaches this scenario this set of circumstances first truth is this the gospel of god does not discriminate it doesn't see color it doesn't see race It doesn't see moral status. It does not see social status. It is a non-discriminatory power and love from God. And so what happens is Jesus initiates and the woman responds. And it's fascinating because she's going to point at three fences that are in place culturally. And what those fences say is this. We don't talk. And here's the three reasons. One first is gender a man and a woman in the ancient culture, and you pick it up when you get to the end of the chapter, and the disciples say to Jesus, why are you talking to a woman? What's going on with that? Right? And there's don't know all that's involved in that question, but there's some type of curiosity on their part as to why that discussion is even happening, because in that context, it would have been deemed inappropriate for that interaction to take place in a private realm like the well with no one else there. Secondly, she points to the racial fence. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk. And there's part of me that would love to have the audio recording of this to get tone and inflection. Stunned, amazed. He's engaging me in a con- We don't talk. This is not socially appropriate or acceptable. But there's a deeper underlying issue with a woman coming to the well at noon. In the ancient world, going to the well was a social experience. Most of the women, the majority, the vast, in this case, obviously everyone but her, would have taken their bucket in the morning and gone to the well, had their daily conversation, catching up on what's going on, would have gotten their water, and would have gone home. For some reason that is not yet disclosed, this woman does not participate in the normal social experience of her day. And I think what you can derive from that, what we definitely know as we move forward in this story, is that she has a social deficiency. So there's a gender deficiency, a racial deficiency, and there's also a social deficiency. She's not welcome in the normal crowd. I don't know if you've ever watched the movie The Step for Wise. I'm not recommending it, okay? Or if you've ever seen the movie The Help. Both of those movies are driven by, by massive social, social classification and divide. There are the people that have and there are the people that have not. And the people that are trying to have but really don't and are judged and condemned. And those movies are laced with a sarcastic Demeaning, debilitating focus that allows you to crawl into the heart of someone who is a social outcast and to feel the stigmatization and the distance from everybody. And the movie's aim at pointing out the deep pain of those who have secrets, moral secrets. And so the, the first thing I want you to just kind of get out of the text is, this is a woman that falls into the classification of unacceptable and unapproachable. And the Savior of the world, when he is in that context, moves into her world, initiates contact intentionally for the good of the gospel. Folks, do you understand that we have a Savior who does not discriminate? who was known as the friend of sinners, this encounter, if you know the Gospels, you should be able to predict how this is going to work out. When someone in that position comes, he will move in her direction because he, in his own words, said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Gospel that saves you is the Gospel that changes you and should change how you relate to people and how you go into your daily life. Because when God selected you, he didn't get a prize. He demonstrated his grace that does not discriminate based on normal proclivities. The challenge I simply give you on that first thought is this. You and I have encounters every day. Am I moving like Christ with a heart that says, in my sphere of influence, whether it be in the realm of business or in social endeavors or in education or at school as a young person or, or, or mixing with other moms or with other dads in an athletic, and whatever it is, every context Jesus went into, mission was at the forefront because the gospel that he came to proclaim was such great news. And so the first thought is this, this call to gospel sharing is a call to share something that does not Discriminate it is a free gift for all. And the second thought emerges as you kind of follow the storyline, Jesus she finally says to Jesus, "How can you ask me for a drink?" And Jesus gives a fascinating reply. He answered her, "If you knew the gift of God," I want you to focus on that phrase because I think it's central to the text. "If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have begged him." And he would have given you living water. That is a fascinating statement. And I think the emphasis of it is on the nature of the gift that is offered. He would have given you water as a gift from God that would meet more than your physical need. And that's the, the first hint here. The woman comes to the well because she is overcome with a physical thirst. Jesus looks beyond that physical thirst and sees the deeper, real, true need. And for that reason, he takes the fences that are erected by people and rips them down and moves into a realm that will make even his disciples uncomfortable. Because he knew that he had a gift to offer and that this individual was desperately in need of it. So my second thought is that the gospel of God is a free gift. Verse 11, she responds. She says, well, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said, let me answer your question. Am I greater than Jacob? Jesus says, hear this. Everyone who drinks this water has to come back every day day because it never truly satisfies and what is he doing i believe jesus is awakening a sense of need in this woman a need that is perpetual and can not be quenched and then he says indeed the water that i give them will become in them a spring of water not a well stagnant but a spring of water uh, Bursting up into eternal life. So he attaches to the physical discussion and eternal elements. The water I give springs forth. It perpetually bubbles up. And the implication is that it brings satisfaction. But the focus in this context is that it is a free offer. And it is a gift from God. At the heart of Christ's offer to satisfy is grace. And grace is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. As you study the Bible, you will find this to be true, that the gospel of God and the grace of God does not reward religious performance. It is not impressed by it, nor is it attracted to it. It is a free offer of rescue for sinners, for those who deserve the wrath of God. Therefore, it is available to anyone. Well, the conclusion I think that we can draw from that in application is something like this. The highly religious person, the self-disciplined person, which this woman certainly is not. That self-disciplined, highly religious person has no advantage as a result of their efforts. Those higher up on the religious ladder, morally or socially, are not privileged before God. God is never in the position of owing me. Me. He is always offering me grace freely. He offers to us a beautiful and wonderful joy-producing gift. You know, the Apostle Paul, I think, is a good illustration of this religious person trying to find favor with God and denying, therefore, the grace of God. Paul was a Pharisee. He was an ultimate ladder climber. He was a chief of sinners... But it came to a point in his life after encountering Christ that he says all of that performance and all of that effort, all of that struggle to earn favor from God and to get God to owe me is rubbish. It's stuff to be cast aside. It is worthless in the realm of seeking to relate with God. Jesus, the friend of sinners, came to say that no one is too far gone. No one is too sinful. No one is too broken. No one is too hopeless because the grace of God is gives hope for sinners. And I want you to understand that this grace is a gift that God is offering to a broken person. And it's recorded in Scripture because the aim of this text is so that you might, John 20, 21, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why this account is there. To make much of Jesus who offers the good news of the gospel to people desperately in need of it for free. You see, in sharing The good news i'm not a salesman i'm not trying to convince people of something that they're unwilling to acknowledge i'm simply sharing the good news of christ and i had an experience years ago that it gives some insight into this idea that the vast majority of people believe that favor with god is earned by performance or it is lost because of bad performance Okay, I was golfing with a friend of mine named Randy Cole. This goes back, gosh. Let me just say it this way. I was in my 30s, okay? <laughs> so I'm thinking, I'm like, whoa. All right, that goes back a ways. Well, Randy and I were golfing over at the Mine Hill in Hackettstown. I've since given up golf, by the way, okay? <laughs> there was no improvement I game and no favor from God to assist, so I just got rid of it. So we're golfing with these two guys, and what happens if you've never gone golfing? If you get there and there's two of you, they usually run foursomes. So we had a twosome, they had a twosome, so you put the twosomes together and you get a foursome, right? So we're playing golf with these two guys, and I have to tell you something. I've, I've heard a lot of uh, profanity, okay? Uh, if you live in the workaday world, you, you hear a lot of language. There are times that you are... I don't know what the word is. And sometimes you're stunned or you're kind of caught off guard by how technicolor it can be and how aggressive. And that's what was going on this day. And I was like, wow, this is a fascinating experience. We get to about the 11th hole. We've been talking to these guys much. And finally, the, the one guy's, they're about 70 yards away. Randy's driving the cart. He dropped me off because my shot was way out of bounds. And he's pulled up beside that guy because their balls are close together. And the guy says to him, "By the way, what does he do for a living?" Randy says, "He's my pastor." All I hear—I don't, I don't hear the conversation. I find out from Randy what it was later. All I hear is, "No blanking way! I am definitely going to hell now." He inquired what I thought of uh, pastoral ministry and the business of church. And I said, well, there's no shortage of sinners. Case in point. (laughs) Now, Randy invited them to lunch, and we had a beautiful opportunity to share with them. I, I told them, I said, I'm going to tell you why I'm a pastor. I'm not a pastor because I think I can help people. I'm a pastor because I know someone who can help you. I know someone who's interested in you. And here's the thing you, you, you have to think about this. After this encounter, this guy was profusely and profoundly apologizing. Why? I, I didn't say anything to him. He was self convicting. Here's what I want you to know the person that's out there reckless in sin is not. Apart from a conscience that alternately says that's right and that is wrong. That's what Romans 1 tells us, doesn't it? That you have a conscience that alternately is accusing and defending. And this man in that moment was feeling a strong sense of conviction, not because of me, but because the circumstance caused him to evaluate his behavior that he was not in control of. He became aware of how dark his sin was just because he was around someone. He didn't know me, he just knew a title. That had some connection to God. And when that connection was made to him, he felt uncomfortable, but was powerless to change it. I did not sit down with him at lunch and say, you need to try harder. you got to clean up your act. Your language is horrible. Some of the worst I've ever heard. I didn't say that. I said, I'm in ministry because I'm a sinner who found grace. Found help from God. He changed my life and the trajectory of my life. I have no idea where I would be without him. Probably cursing on a golf course. No. (laughs) I didn't proclaim to him the need for reformation. That is no hope for a guilty sinner. Every person who comes to understand the depth of their sin is desperately in need of a gospel that is grace-driven. It's the message that they have been longing to hear but have not heard. Now, I would argue that that when that message settles in, and here's what I find, the more I have opportunity to share the gospel of grace, the more I want to. And here's why I think that's true. I think that's true because as you encounter people in various circumstances in their life, and you have the opportunity to proclaim grace and truth to them, and you begin, you begin to see God move and show someone their brokenness. And you get that spark of hope that this person seems to be moving in the direction of the cross of Christ. And they're about to taste water that will quench their thirst spiritually forever. Folks, there is nothing better in life than that. And it is what God has, in His grace, called us to, not because we're perfect vessels. You don't have to be and you can't be. But if you're willing and you start, start to go into your daily encounters in a non-discriminating way that seeks to communicate a free message of grace and hope for every person in your sphere of influence, you will find that your life takes on a mission. You will find that your life has a purpose. And, that, and this is one of the reasons I needed to change my position in the church. I needed to be out on the street with people. Why? Because that's where the opportunity is. It's not in my office as a pastor. I was jealous of the opportunity that you had. And God convinced me that's where he wanted me to go. Not because there's something wonderful about me, but because there's something wonderful about the gospel that compels, drives, and changes our daily life. Here's what the Bible says. It says, freely you have received... Freely give. And when you begin to understand what you've experienced, it will transform every encounter in your life. You'll start to see it with a purpose. You'll start to get intentional about engaging with people. I have a friend, uh, he and I frequent the same uh, eatery. And the reason we do, and we've talked about this with each other, is to seek to gain a relationship, because God works in the context of vital relationships, to communicate the gospel and to see change come so I challenge you and encourage you find context intentionally in which you can share the good news of Christ regularly and you will find that your joy in the gospel increases and that your desire to communicate that message increases as you walk in obedience and the spirit of God begins to empower and show you beautiful and powerful things in people's lives so I want to encourage you to walk in that So the text then transitions. In verse 15, she cries out and says, give me this water. And then you're thinking, she got it. No, she doesn't. Watch what it says. Give me that water so I won't get thirsty and have to come to this well to draw water. And you're like, darn. She knows she has a need. She's there to meet it. She thinks that her physical need is the need that he's trying to address. And she says, well, if there's water, like if you drink it one time and then you're good for the rest of your life, I'd like that. And so Jesus says to her in verse 16, a strong statement, but it's meant for clarification. His intent is not to wound. It's a gracious and direct confrontation, verse 16. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back. And she's got to be like, Who's been talking? How could he possibly know? I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man that you are with now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Here, here, here's a truth that you need to understand. If you're going to share the gospel, the full gospel, the gospel always confronts before it transforms. In this, what is it from Jesus? It is a gracious yet direct confrontation, it is a spiritual wake up call. Her initial response, verse 17, is what? I have no husband. Do you know the people that give you like partial confessions? All right. This is a partial confession. She's not ready to say the Hollywood version of her story because her version would make Hollywood blush. She's ready to say, I'm not married. Jesus does not back down, sensing that she's a little uncomfortable, which is what most of us do. Jesus presses in because he sees the depth of the need and he knows that he has something that can meet that deepest need in her life. What is he doing? He's moving from physical need to spiritual longing and hunger. She wants physical water. Jesus says, I'm sorry, that's not your issue. And so he, he, he presses in in a gracious yet direct way. She misleads. He redirects and speaks the truth boldly, not to belittle, not to disparage, but to awaken a true sense of the depth of her need so that she will seek that which can, in a lasting way, change her life. You see, folks, water is like the things that people pump into their lives to get satisfaction. The gospel works differently. The gospel brings about lasting and permanent change. You see, this woman had a real need, a real thirst. She had a moral deficiency. That's why she's there at noon, alone and isolated. Because that's what sin does to you. It, it unconfessed and unforgiven, drives you further and further away from what you actually need Most. And Jesus is not willing to be the guy that hears that she has is an issue and walk away. He presses in deeper to see that that need is met by the power of the gospel that transforms or that confronts before it transforms. He is getting personal. Now, verse 19, what she does in response is she pats him on the back. She says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. You. You got it right. You exposed me. And then she does this evasion or diversion. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She goes into a religious controversy with racial overtones. The Samaritans worship here. Uh, The Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she gets into a religious discussion to act like she's quasi-informed. Yeah, I got a messed up life, but... I know a little. And so she begins to compliment Jesus and then unfold a little bit of her knowledge about the local controversy. And Jesus grabs it and brings it right back to the center. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, but a time is coming. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. They will worship God directly. It will not be through a place, because through the cross work that Jesus is now forecasting and foretelling, there will be equal access for all people of all races to come into a relationship with God by grace through faith alone. And it is that that Jesus then, he, he, he presses back on her, and talks about God is seeking a soul-satisfying intimacy with himself. That's how he aims to meet your need. Not by worshiping in a particular building, but by coming into a personal relationship with God through the grace of his son. And I think she is, he is saying to her something like this. You have been exposed as deficient. And that's why in verse 25... She says, I know that Messiah is coming. She knows that. And what Jesus then says, she says, I know he's coming. Jesus looks at her and says, well, he's here. And the penny drops. And something in the conversation changes. And it is a a powerful transition. She says, look at verse 25 real quick. I'll just read it to you. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I think Jesus' next statement is something like, yeah, it just happened to you. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Hope is right in front of you hope for forgiveness hope for final lasting true satisfaction through the power of the gospel is right in front of you here's what's beautiful then the disciples returned presumably from McDonald's they were surprised to find him talking with the woman but no one asked what do you want or why are you talking with her now notice the next verse because this to me is a fascinating transition in the story. It says, then leaving her water jar. Okay, so she came to the well at midday to get water. She ends up in a conversation about water and about true thirst. And the conversation that leads her to living water, I almost fell, the conversation that leads her to living water is so overwhelming and satisfying that she forgets her temporal thirst because her permanent thirst is being satisfied. That's what the gospel does. It causes temporal t- pursuits to become less important because the gospel of God that is beginning to alter this woman's life is coming and changing her. She leaves in haste, and I just i just love the little side note, leaving her water jar. She gets back to town, and what does she do? She goes into her house and hides in a corner and coddles the gift of grace. That is never the response to saving grace. So if you say to me, well, I trusted Christ, I just don't tell anybody. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know that you've truly trusted Christ. I don't know that you've been overwhelmed by an uncontainable joy and grace and hope until it starts emerging from your life. And that emerging does not save you, but that emerging is evidence that something beautiful has transpired in this heart and they have an uncontainable joy and grace and hope to share with needy people. Then you will not be put off by encounters with people with bad language or bad habits or bad stories like this. You will be attracted to them because you understand they have a longing, they have a thirst, and they've been trying to cram everything into that but living water. And what they need to know is the power of the gospel that can truly change and transform. So for Jesus, there is this threshold of pain that he encounters in this woman's life. She pulls back, he pursues, allows her to feel the pinch of gospel truth so that she will long for gospel grace, which can forgive her and save her in spite of the darkness of her history. Now you may say to yourself, why why does Jesus encounter someone so extreme in their sinfulness and you got to admit i said I think i said this earlier hollywood would blush at this story married five times living with someone else i mean even in hollywood they'd be like okay that's that's a little too much why why does jesus in this account and why is it recorded in the gospel that's meant to promote belief and trust in the living water of christ why is it there It's there to show us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. He reaches to the extreme edge of sinfulness and rescues. Don't miss it. So that I can take that kind of truth and begin to communicate it with other people who are in the same situation. I never come across someone who is beyond the reach of God's grace. That's what this story proclaims as hope. And I, I just, when that kind of joy comes, when you realize that the water of life can satisfy the most troubled person, it is truly transformational for your daily life. My last thought is this The gospel, like water, is powerful. The gospel, like water, is powerful. It is able, it is capable to bring lasting satisfaction. Now, here's what I want to say about water in general. Water is essential for survival. The average adult's body is 50 to 65% water. Okay, that's why when you dehydrate, you start to get that sense of sickness. Okay, it had to happen to me twice this summer because I'm, I'm hard-headed. Okay, I didn't need water. Okay, <laughs> until the headache and the blurry vision comes in you're like, oh crap, I need water. Water's powerful. Water used to be free. So they started doing this, right? That's a sixteen billion dollar industry in America. Okay? Water. Not all the other stuff in bottles, but water. The water of life that Jesus offers has the capacity to meet the greatest, strongest, and most powerful need in your life. You know, when we talk about physical thirst, we, we say that it is powerful and it is debilitating. Why then the analogy of thirst? And I think the answer is this. Thirst is powerful, that craving, that sense of being parched. And when you get a bottle of water in your hands or a cup of water or a jug of water or a hose in your hand, you don't sip. You guzzle. You, you imbibe. You take it in relentlessly to find satisfaction and the killing of that thirst. Because that thirst is troubling and disturbing. For a thirsty person, water is the best news possible. Only water can satisfy a human heart or a a human need. Only Jesus can bring soul satisfaction. So folks, when you're interacting with people, they don't need a relationship with you to become whole and complete. They need the person that you know if you've trusted Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking that if I go and help people, I'm doing something important. If it is not tied to gospel, grace, and power, it falls short of God's directive in His Word. We ought to do good, but we must always tie it to gospel truth. Inseparably, the proclamation of the gospel and the good that we do are glued and wed and welded together. Then that is what drives the service that we Offer to others because we know that the service that we're offering is is if you will a, a a a a setting in which the gospel of god's grace and the water of life that transforms can be presented folks do you realize that you live in a world of thirsty people that are trying to jam everything into their lives to find satisfaction it can be sex it can be money it can be a career it can be family. It can be children. And here's where you're going to find. Every one of those things at some point in your life will let you down to disappoint. It will leave you longing for true living water. Like water to a parched mouth. So the gospel is to a tired, sinful soul. Jesus is pointing to her deepest need that she has sought for years to fill in illicit relationships. And Jesus is saying to her, you can't find soul satisfaction in anything but the gospel of grace, which restores you to fellowship with God who made you for himself. When you find it, you won't sip. You will drink the whole thing. And you will take it in, and you in Christ will find what you have always been longing for. I say, God, help us. Help us to see the real need around us. How do you know the woman's changed? By the fruit of her life. She goes back without a directive, without very much knowledge. All she knows is, I have been changed By the grace of God, I have been forgiven. I was sought by God Himself in the person of His Son Jesus Christ. My life is changed. And what if she goes back? and, And she, the woman that hid in the corner of her house and went to the well at noon so she wouldn't have to talk to anybody, goes back and in town becomes a clarion call. Come and see a man. And everybody's like, Isn't that so and so? What's got her all jacked up? What's brought her out of her dark closet? What does she say? Come see a man that told me everything I did and in breaking me, healed me. Do you understand why you need to share the real truth of the Gospels? And that is that every individual is a sinner in need of a Savior. We're broken people who in our sinfulness seek to find satisfaction in the most distorted ways. But when we hear about the water of life, we understand that only Jesus truly satisfies and the satisfaction is so complete and deep that this woman goes back to town and breaks her lifelong silence. But the call come and see. That's how I know she's changed. That's how I know that the penny dropped in the story and that the gospel of hope for a sinner became clear because the one speaking to you, am He, the Messiah, living water? Now, I'm going to point one other thing out in the text and then I'm done. If you look at verse 21, verse 21, the text says this. It says, believe me, Jesus talking to her, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. When you will come into God's presence forgiven, free, a son, a daughter of God. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, every time in reading the Gospel of John, you find this idea of the time or the hour. It is always tied to the cross work of Christ. Every time. Okay? So the hour looks forward to the passion of Christ. That's what when it, when Jesus says to Mary. Mary says, hey, Jesus, do a miracle. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, my time. And you'll find that repeatedly through the Gospel of John, always referring forward to the passion, to what he does on the cross. You think with me about the cross? One of, if not the most, second most profound moments on the cross is when the Son of God, having been in his human form, completely demoralized and drained, experiences separation from his Father, Which creates a longing in his heart to cause him to say, I thirst. And when you start to make the connection, he had come to bear the wrath of God for my sin that drives me to brokenness and dryness in my life. He stood in my place on the cross so fully. That he endured the physical thirst and the spiritual thirst, separation from God. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer from heaven is silence because the Son knows in his human form what Father is doing. He's bearing the full price of his sin, the full brokenness of humanity, the full thirst that you and I experience, and that thirst is only satisfied through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That gospel is so powerful that Paul would later say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. It is the power of God to soul satisfaction. Here's what I want to encourage you to do as a Christian, if you know Christ. I want to encourage you to think back to when you first tasted the water that satisfied. To when you first saw your sin and saw that Jesus Christ was a great Savior who could meet the deepest need of your life, and He changed you. I want you to go back and revisit that again and again and again. I want you to begin to share that under the directive of Jesus. Not my directive. It's the directive of Christ. And as you begin to posture yourself in relationships intentionally, with the message that does not discriminate, that offers free grace, that can change people's lives, it will change your daily life and daily experience. It will give you a reason to get up in the morning. And as you share it, here's my... If I'm going to break it down and say, when do I experience the deepest joy in my salvation? One time is in corporate worship on Sunday morning. Another time that I experience it is in baptism services when people share that they found water. I find it powerful. I find it compelling. But I will tell you this. The time that I appreciate the gospel the most is when I'm sitting in front of someone who desperately needs it. And there's a God-given appointment, a divine necessity, to speak truth that changes lives. I'll tell you this, for me personally, it is almost always accompanied with tears of joy. And here's what the Bible says. The angels in heaven explode when a thirsty person finds water. Folks, that joy of heaven explodes in the heart of a believer by the Spirit. A river of water, Acts 2 says, that springs up to everlasting life. That water bubbles up for a purpose, not for your personal enjoyment, even though it is. It bubbles up so that you share it with people around you. Not because I have to, Pastor, preached that sermon. I felt bad on Sunday. I don't want you to feel bad. It won't change you. I want you to find joy in the gospel that is uncontainable. And to go into your day tomorrow, encounter the person that irritates the crap out of you, that has bad language, that is always at your back, always nipping at your heels, frustrating you, aggravating you. Let gospel joy inform how you respond. Kill your flesh. Put it to death. And let the gospel of God emerge out of a deep joy and satisfaction that they start to say to you, tell me about that. I had a relationship, I'll tell you this real quick. I had a relationship developed in my life recently uh, where someone knows I'm a pastor and I've interacted with them. And they point blank said to me, why haven't you ever talked to me about Jesus? That's odd. Here's what I said to him. I said, because I know you have a number of Christians in your life who you've told me have done that with you. I said, here's what I want you to understand. I am not less passionate about it. And I'm waiting for the divine appointment. I'm relating to you because I love you as a person. But I have a greater desire than that you would come to know the love of Christ through our life. Now, I was kind of rebuked in that moment. and I was also explaining I I want you to know him because when you know him it will change your life so dramatically and so powerfully and when God changes your life I will be so happy because I I will never be able to say I did that no you didn't you were just an instrument that God used in a divine appointment to do his work that's the joy inexpressible and full of glory God help your joy by the spirit to well up in us So that we cannot keep quiet. Almost like the joy of the birth of a new child. Uncontainable. Has to be shared. Life changing. Hope inducing. Eternity changing. Gospel. Oh God give us courage. To wound and heal. In helping people. Make us willing to cross the threshold of pain that opens the door to heavenly light and hope that is found in Jesus. And Lord, we only know that when we know we are sinners who have found a great Savior. God, that's every person in this room who has been converted. Help us to take the little bit we know, treasure it, and in our joy, share it. Make us a church that does that. I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.